Good morning. I'm Doug Inman. I'm a ruling elder at Lexington Presbyterian Church, and I'll be filling in for Kent this morning. And so if you came here to hear Kent preach, you'll be very disappointed. But we will be talking about the resurrection. My assignment is Mark chapter 16. We're talking about the resurrection. And my objective today is to answer two questions that you'll see in your outline. First, why should you believe the resurrection? And second, what does the resurrection mean for us today? And I hope this bolsters your faith, and I hope to encourage you and exhort you to live for our risen king. Without the resurrection, the story of the book of Mark, which y'all have been going through, would end last week. In Mark chapter 15, with Jesus' death and burial, a tragic story, and in the end, death wins. The curse continues. Evil has triumphed over good. And we have no hope, and yet we all long for a different kind of story. We all crave a different kind of story. In John Bunyan's wonderful book, Pilgrim's Progress, it's the story, he tells an allegorical story about a Christian, or a man named Christian, who becomes a believer, and he's traveling to the celestial city. And along the way, he has these ups and downs, and he faces challenges. But the most serious challenge comes when he and his friend Hopeful are captured by a giant named Despair. And the giant Despair takes them to the Doubting Castle and throws them into the dungeon. He beats them and starves them, and then he begins to tell them to just kill yourself. That's the only way you can escape from this dungeon. So they lose hope. They sink into the darkest moment of doubt and despair. And last week, Jesus' disciples, after his crucifixion and burial, they were a lot like Christian and hopeful, with great despair and doubt and fear. And they were in a sort of dungeon with no escaping, hope had died. And so this morning, if you haven't already turned to Mark 16, go ahead and turn to Mark 16. The story continues. And so let's hear the inerrant, infallible word of the living God. Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene the Mary, and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you in Ga to Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The ending of Mark leaves us with 
an empty tomb, and a proclamation that Jesus had been raised. And these women, they were witnesses to the greatest and most well-attested event in ancient history, the resurrection, and they were seized with astonishment. And so the first thing we're going to look at is why should you believe the resurrection? And the first thing I have is you should believe the resurrection based on the authority of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul recites one of the first Christian creeds in existence, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The Scriptures authoritatively define for us what we believe and tell us how we are to live. But how exactly was Christ raised in accordance with the Scriptures? The whole Old Testament is the story of redemption. It's a story of redemption where God has called and formed the people for himself. And he guides them along with promises for them to hope in that ultimately he would fix what man had messed up. And so in the beginning, God created all things and he called them good. Death was not part of God's original design. Sin and corruption were not part of God's good design. But sin entered the world through one man, And death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So God's desire for mankind was obedience and life, and man chose rebellion and death. And yet God is so merciful that he did not give us what we deserve. He gave Adam and Eve a promise in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would defeat the enemy And as redemptive history unfolds, Abraham receives God's promise that blessing would flow to all the families of the earth through his seed, and the curse of the fall would not rule over mankind. And then David receives a promise that he would have a son who would remain seated on the throne forever, the Messiah who would rule over the nations. And he is promised that he would not see corruption. David prophesies in Psalm 1610, Yahweh will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. So in the Old Testament, there's an anticipation of hope of this curse being removed by a Savior, by a Messiah. However, the Messiah would not remove the curse the way that everybody expected. He would suffer and die, Isaiah 53. And then Psalm 22 describes a crucifixion in great detail, long before the Romans invented crucifixion. And then the psalm advances in the last part, verses 22 through 31, into life after death. And then the Messiah. The Messiah, he would not come and conquer the curse and glory and power and military conquest, but he would actually become the curse. Philippians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming the curse for us. And so in Deuteronomy 21.23, it says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The suffering death and resurrection of the Messiah was all necessary for the scriptures to be fulfilled, for God's promises to become true. And then turn with me in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 25. And we're going to look actually at verses 6 through 8. 
And Isaiah refers to something that's happened at Mount Zion. And Mount Zion is the place, it's the location where God dwells with his people. It's the location of the temple. And so in verses 6 through 8, It says this, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of, of, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And so when Isaiah said this, it would actually be centuries before Christ came. So for centuries, Jews would read this passage, and they would hope, but then reality would set in, and they would die. And generation after generation, they would die. And some would interpret this passage to just be a beautiful picture, a metaphor, something that shows us the way that things ought to be. We're supposed to believe that this is the way things ought to be, but in reality, death reigns over us. They were looking forward with anticipation, hoping for something to happen. And now we actually look back and we see what did happen. Jesus defeated death. It was swallowed up by his resurrection. You see, the scriptures have primed everyone for the resurrection. And they've declared that it, it will come to pass. My Holy One will not see corruption. Death will be swallowed up forever. And then in the New Testament, Jesus himself prophesied several times, I will die, I will suffer and die, and on the third day I will rise again. So this first point is that you should believe the resurrection based on the authority of scripture. The second point is you should believe the resurrection based on historical evidence. There's overwhelming historical evidence for the resurrection. Gary Habermas is a historian and a New Testament scholar. He was a skeptic who became a Christian when he started studying and looking at the evidence for the resurrection. He figured that if the resurrection is true, then Christianity must be true. And this caused him to look deeper into it. And then he became a Christian, and his life's work has been centered on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because it is the most important doctrine in the Christian faith. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. So while there are many historical things we could look at, Habermas wrote a book that's over 5,000 pages. We are going to limit it to five reasons for you today. Five reasons that you should believe in the resurrection based on historical evidence. One thing, number one, the women's prominent role. Many skeptics in the first century, and even now, their best explanation for the resurrection is, oh, the story was just made up. It's all fabricated. The problem with that is, that hypothesis is that all the other authentic historical details that follow the gospel accounts for example, the Gospels tell us that women are the first ones to discover the empty tomb and to hear the announcement of the resurrection and to see the risen Savior. And we need to understand that in the, in the historical context of, of first century Palestine, 
Women were not always respected as witnesses in Jewish courts. The Mishnah, which is an authoritative Jewish collection of tradition and laws in the Talmud, it says that women are unfit witnesses, that they are people you shouldn't listen to as well as gamblers with dice, those, lend with in, those who lend with interest, pigeon racers, and slaves. So these are not people fit to give testimony in court according to Jewish culture. They are not to be trusted. And that's how women are viewed in the first century. So it would be very offensive and embarrassing for Jesus' disciples the fact that women were used to substantiate the central claim of Christianity, that Jesus had risen from the dead. And so if the disciples wanted to make up this story, they would not have included this. They would have never used women as the primary witnesses. And this is really what historians call the criterion of embarrassment. So if someone tells you something that happened and it brings shame and embarrassment to them, it's probably true. So Mark's account of the resurrection story bears all the characteristics of a genuine historical report, and it speaks of the trustworthiness of scriptures. The second thing is the empty tomb. The empty tomb is a central concrete fact that points to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And there are no good explanations for the empty tomb other than the resurrection. The reason that Jesus' tomb is such a key, key piece of evidence is because it was in a known location. It says that he was taken to a garden not too far from where he was crucified and that he was buried. It was a location known to all Jerusalem. Joseph of Arimathea burying Jesus is a very important fact because he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was wealthy. He was respected. And so the, being buried in his tomb, it's falsifiable. You could go up to him and question him and test him and ask him questions. Another piece of evidence that infers that there was an empty tomb and Jesus' body is nowhere to be found were the Jews who began accusing the disciples of stealing the body. And by making that accusation, they are admitting that the tomb was empty and that Jesus' body was nowhere to be found. And they have no better explanation than Jesus died on Friday night, was buried, and then on Sunday his tomb is empty. But even if you believe that the disciples pulled off this hoax, even if you believe that, how do you explain everything else that happens after the resurrection? How do you explain the apostles' lifelong commitment to a hoax, their willingness to suffer and die for a hoax? How do you explain the many appearances of the risen witnesses, of the risen Christ? And that brings us to the next point, the third thing, the eyewitness accounts. So go ahead, we're going to actually turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at Paul's testimony. And this is important that we don't just see an empty tomb and infer a resurrection. We need to look at the evidence. So beginning with verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ was buried, 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. And so the eyewitnesses to the resurrection are so important because, again, it's testable. You could go to these people. You could talk to these people and question them. Notice another thing about Paul's testimony. He begins with the authority of scripture. And then he moves to the evidence, multiple attestations. And then he comes to his own experience. And this is important for us to understand because we often start with our testimony, with our experience. We start with, and our experience doesn't prove what is objectively true. Everything must be subjected to the truth of scripture, especially our reason and our experiences because we are fallen because we are not the ultimate reference point of truth. Man is not the ultimate reference point of truth. God is. God's word is the ultimate reference point. Even the angel at the tomb of Jesus says, look at the tomb. He is not here. He has been raised. After all, he, sa he says all this, and then he says, just as Jesus had said would happen. So the evidence, the empty tomb, the eyewitnesses, this all supports simply what Jesus had said. The fourth thing is the rapid spread of the gospel. So let's return to the dungeon of Doubting Castle for a moment. And Christian and his friend Hopeful had completely lost hope. They had been locked up by the giant despair in the dungeon. But in this dark moment, Christian remembers something. He remembers that in his pocket, he has a key. And by this key, he can escape. He can escape from the dungeon, from his bondage, from the chains. And it was a key of promise. And so this key let Christian and Hopeful out of their bondage. They escaped and ran to freedom, and they got back on the king's highway, heading towards the celestial city. But keep in mind, this only worked because the key of promise was true. In the same way, in the disciples' darkest moment of despair, they found their key. It was Jesus' promise that he would rise again. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, Because I live, you also will live. But the key of promise for the disciples only works if what Jesus said was true. So if you remain skeptical about the resurrection, you have to admit this. Something happened. During Friday, everyone abandoned him. After Sunday, everyone was willing to die for a risen Savior. They were filled with hope and joy and passion to spread the good news. Something happened. Jesus had a following, and then Christianity exploded. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is the only thing with the explanatory power for what happened after his death. And the catalyst of Christianity is not Jesus' death. We don't meet on Fridays and worship on Fridays. We meet on the day that he rose again on Sundays, the Lord's Day. So the rapid growth of Christianity 
in the first few centuries. This is one of the most remarkable phenomena in human history. And the resurrection is by far the best explanation for that. And so you have to think that this promise was true. The fifth thing, the fifth piece of evidence are the conversions of James and Paul. James and Paul, they're major figures in making the case for the resurrection because they rejected Jesus, but they end up converting to Christianity and preaching the gospel and worshiping Jesus as God. And this all happened because of resurrection appearances. James, the brother of Jesus, was a skeptic, and he did not believe in or follow Jesus while he's walking on earth. In John chapter 7, it says all Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. They were actually embarrassed by him. In Luke chapter 4, his own hometown, Nazareth, rejected him. They don't just reject him, though. They try to throw him over a cliff. And so you can see how his brothers would be embarrassed of him. But after the resurrection, after Jesus has gone through mockery, crucifixion, and has literally become a curse, James becomes a follower, a pillar of the church, and a leader in Jerusalem, in the church of Jerusalem. The best explanation is the promise was true because he appeared, it says he appeared to James in Paul's account. Next is Paul's conversion. And this is another powerful argument in support of the resurrection. Paul was a devout Pharisee. He was a zealot for the law. And so much so that he was persecuting Christians because they believed in and worshiped Jesus. Paul's testimony is that he encounters the resurrected Jesus, and he is converted. He becomes an apostle, and he suffers and dies with joy, preaching the gospel of Christ and him crucified. And if you are a skeptic, you have to deal with Paul. You have to tell me whether he is mad, whether he's a liar, or whether what he's saying is true. And so if you are calling him a liar, then why would he lie so consistently for so long and suffer so much and gain nothing, beatings and imprisonment, and then die for this lie? If he was a madman, if that's your conclusion, then you have to tell me why. Read Paul. I've read Paul. I read someone who is very lucid and very clear and consistent over his whole life. He is steadfast and mentally unwavering. Paul is one of the most powerful arguments that can be made that the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely true. And so, why should you believe the resurrection? In summary, look at all the historical evidence. The women's prominent role in the story, the empty tomb, the authenticity of the biblical accounts, multiple eyewitnesses, the fact that the gospel spread rapidly, the conversions of non-believers who were even antagonists of Christianity. So the resurrection is the only thing that has consistent explanatory power to everything that happened after Jesus' death and burial. So after all of that, the question is now for you guys. Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe in the resurrection? You might be wondering, if there is such strong evidence, then why are some people still doubting? Why do some people still doubt? Let's turn to Luke chapter 16, and we're going to look at a parable. Luke chapter 16, beginning with verse 19. So why did some people doubt? I'll mention this too. In Matthew, 
chapter 28, it says that Jesus, when he appeared to his disciples, they were worshiping him. And it says, even then, some of them doubted. The story of the rich man and Lazarus. Verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, fathers, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And so there's a couple things. There's a lot in that passage, but the things I want to point out is this. First of all, the two things that he asked for. He asked for relief. There is no relief. It's too late. Judgment has come. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is accounted man wants to die and then comes judgment. And so in this parable, it shows us what is true. It's too late. Secondly, he asked for someone to be sent to his brother's. And so when Abraham tells him that they have Moses and the prophets, he's saying, you have the scriptures. You have God's precious word. You have God's promise. But the rich man's response is, is stunning. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Notice what he is saying here. He's saying God's word is not enough. He's saying God's word, the scriptures, they're not convincing enough. The scriptures are not sufficient. They aren't going to change my brothers. They cannot change their hearts. After all, they didn't change my heart. But if you send someone, they will believe. It would have happened for me. I have an excuse for being here. This is very arrogant. And it's astounding how arrogant it is. And we have the same arrogance in our own hearts when we hear God's word and we think that we know better than God. When we think the scriptures are not sufficient. 
And there are brilliant scholars who reject everything supernatural in Scripture. They reject the virgin birth. They reject the incarnation. They reject all the miracles because they think they're smarter than God. The Bible embarrasses some people. They, they will say, I can't believe that God would send people to hell. He would not do that. Not my God. I can't believe God would destroy the Amalekites. Not my God. He is not a God of judgment. He's a God of love. Now you have become the judge of what is true and what is not. You have become the ultimate reference point of truth. And you have said that God's word is a lie. His promises are a lie. So is God's word enough for you? Do you believe in God's promises? And in our day, I'm asking you, do you believe? But there's a lot of meaning behind that word, right? I believe in God. I believe the Braves might just win the World Series again. I believe chocolate is the best ice cream. So when we say believe, it doesn't hold as much commitment as it does in the Greek New Testament. In Greek, the word for belief and faith, it's pistis, and it involves a strong commitment. One New Testament scholar actually says the closest thing we have in our day to believe in the Bible are the words I do at a wedding ceremony. There's commitment, a powerful commitment there and belief. So do you believe in the resurrection? And do you believe in Jesus? Do you have a personal relationship with the risen king? And if you do not, turn to Christ today in repentance and faith. That's what his death and burial and resurrection was for, was for sinners. Do not be doubting, be believing. And if you do believe today, what does it mean for us today? This is the second part. What does it mean? I have six things, and I will take probably another hour and a half. Sorry, Kim. <laughs> this, should be, this should be quicker. First, what does it mean for us today? Jesus rules and reigns now. That's what it means. In the first three centuries at times, Christians were killed for refusing to say, Kaiser Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. Instead, they went to their deaths saying, Kyrie Christe, Christ is Lord, he is the king. And every knee will bow to Christ. You will bow now as his savior, he will be your savior, or you will bow and he will be your judge when it's too late. Jesus is reigning king now. He is at his father's right hand. The scriptures tell us that he is bringing all his enemies subject to him and that the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. Furthermore, Jesus being king, the risen king, means that judgment and true justice is coming in the ultimate sense. That means that everything that's evil in the world, every murderer, everyone who harms and hurts others, they will not get away with it because Jesus Christ is the ruling king. He is the judge of the world. Acts 17.31 says this, Paul says this, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Second, the resurrection means the new creation has began. If you are in Christ, you are already experiencing the power of the risen Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of that creation. He's the first fruits. The resurrection of Christ assures us that God is in the process of making all things new. He's already started the process. You are already part of a new creation. You are made alive in Christ now. But there is still a tension, what theologians call an already but not yet tension that we all know so well. And we feel this underlying reality that something isn't right. We, are, we still struggle with sin, even as new creations. We have not been glorified yet. And so, do you want proof that we haven't been glorified yet? Just look in the mirror. Look in the mirror and you see. You age. You will age. Your hair will turn gray. Your body will fail. You will get sick and you will die. These are all symptoms of the fall, of the sin, of death, of the curse. But if in Christ... In Christ, you, if you are in Christ, you are promised that you will be glorified and, res, and your bodily, body will be resurrected in the same way that Jesus was resurrected. In other words, when the last day comes, you will be raised and your grave will be empty because the curse cannot win. Corruption will not win. Romans 8 says that we wait for glorification and the redemption of our bodies. Third, the resurrection means that we are not still in our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 through 17 says, if, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Now, you might be wondering, if Jesus didn't rise again, he still died for me. Are my sins good? Are they still cleansed? Well, if you go back to the Sanhedrin, I'll just answer that quickly, no. But if you go back to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders putting Jesus on the cross, they accused him of blasphemy. And according to them, God vindicated them by allowing Jesus to be a curse. That was their vindication, that Jesus was indeed a curse. Even Jesus' disciples would have really struggled with this. And so if Jesus died a curse, then a curse he would remain. Because God would not let his Holy One see corruption, nor abandon his soul to Sheol. Romans chapter 4 tells us that Jesus was raised for our justification. The resurrection provides the means for our justification. Our righteous standing before God... Because in raising Christ from the dead, the Father was vindicating the sinless Son and remo by removing the power of death over him. And we are saved by not your righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus. If he were still in the grave, then the Father did not vindicate him, and we remain unjustified, and our faith is in vain. Fourth, because of the resurrection, death has been defeated. In his resurrection, Jesus defeated death. He didn't merely escape from death. He defeated it. He conquered it. And God's promise to us is eternal life simply through faith in Jesus Christ. The greatest fear in life is death. And if you don't fear it for yourself, you will fear it one day for yourself. But you fear it for others, people close to you, that we will suffer pain and die. And we will die and face the unknown. But Jesus said in John chapter 11, verse 25 through 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die yet, he shall live. 
And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The resurrection assures us that death has been defeated. Fifth, because of the resurrection, our lives are not in vain. Ecclesiastes teaches us all about how vain life is. If it wasn't for the resurrection, I couldn't even read Ecclesiastes. The author says, vanity of vanities. He says, all is vanity. The idea is that life is meaningless because we build and others tear down. We pursue education and meaning and purpose and work and pleasure. But all that fades so quickly and we suffer and die in relative obscurity. All is vanity. The great lesson here is that man has no hope of finding substantial meaning in perishable things. And this should lead us to stop trying to find lasting meaning and purpose in anything other than the creator God who has given everything of eternal value through the finished work of Christ. And through Christ, because his body was not left to corruption, there is eternal meaning and purpose and life that we have now and we experience now. This is because the resurrection happened. Apostle Paul says that if there is no resurrection, if the dead are not raised, then let us eat and let us drink, for tomorrow we die. But thanks be to God, we have eternal hope and purpose and meaning in Christ. And lastly, the sixth one, we have a sure hope. The resurrection means we have a sure hope. Hope. Our hope is not in this world nor the things of this world. Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world. Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So we are a people of hope. Our hope is completely rooted in God's promises and his promises to us of salvation. The resurrection proved that God's promises are true and that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. 2 Corinthians 1 tells us that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. We have a sure hope in the living Savior, and that is what the resurrection means, that we have a sure hope. In closing, there's a story I want to tell that I heard on, narrated on YouTube by someone who was talking about J.R. Tolkien and how he planted a seed that led to C.S. Lewis accepting Christ. Lewis and Tolkien, they were both professors at Oxford, and they were one day walking and talking, and Lewis, or Tolkien was speaking of the power of fiction stories. And he said, you know, you know that they are fiction, but when it's well told, when the characters are well developed, you somehow believe that it's true. You feel like you know them. When the plot is well developed, you read this book, you sit down, you watch a movie, you know it's fictional, but you get pulled in. You get emotional, you get happy when something good happens. You get sad when something bad happens. Because if the story is rightly told, if the story is rightly told, it makes you feel as some of it is somehow true. You feel happy to see resolution, happy ending for these characters that you know are simply made up. Because we are God's image, we are, we are created in the image of God, there is this underlying reality in everyone, a deeper sense of meaning and purpose and morality with us all. And that is why human beings still crave a certain kind of story. 
where good wins, where life is snatched from the jaws of defeat and evil is crushed. However, at the factual level, we know that's not the case. We know that we all die. We all lose people that we love. No matter how hard we fight, evil seems to triumph. At the factual level, we know this. And yet, underneath, all humans feel, yeah, but this shouldn't be the case. We aren't meant to die. Evil shouldn't triumph. We aren't meant to lose the ones that we love. At a deeper level, we feel that this is not the way things ought to be. C.S. Lewis, who knew the power of fiction stories and myth, he said, yes, but myths, they are lies breathed through silver. As beautiful as they are, they're just lies. Tolkien said, no, they're not. He said, look at the gospel. Look at the story of Jesus. Do you realize what you have there? Everything that moves you about a story, escape from death, a love that conquers, good triumphing over evil, heroic self-sacrifice. Tolkien said, I want you to see something. The gospel story of Jesus is not just one more story pointing to the underlying reality. Rather, Jesus is the underlying reality to which all these stories point. And the reason we know this is because of the resurrection. The resurrection happened, and it was this underlying reality breaking into our world. And the way life ought to be, Jesus has brought that to reality through the resurrection. The resurrection proves the cross was not a defeat, that there is forgiveness of sins, that there is eternal life and eternal love between us and God. And this is what C.S. Lewis needed to hear. This is what you and I need to hear. The reality of the resurrection means that Jesus is not just one more beautiful story that makes us feel good, where we go in, we sit down, we watch a movie, but then the lights come on and we walk out, or we close the book and we walk back into the real world. The resurrection means the gospel is true, that Christ suffered and died according to the scriptures, that he was buried and raised according to the scriptures. And this is important for us today because the gospel is the only thing with the power to transform you, to free you and save you through the present experience of the risen Christ and dwelling believers by his spirit. The story of Mark's gospel did not end with chapter 15, with the death and burial of a failed Messiah. But it continues with an empty tomb, with a risen king conquering sin and death once and for all so that we could be freed from sin and death and so that we could escape the dungeon of despair by grabbing hold of the promise of God, which is true, that you may have eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, our risen King. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we praise you for sending Jesus to suffer and die for us, to fix what man has messed up through rebellion, bringing sin and death into the world and corruption. We praise you that through Jesus, that will all be changed. We praise you that we can know you, that you still have power to change, to save, for your gospel to spread. And may we all be encouraged with faith and hope this morning that death has been defeated. And we can surely and certainly say 
The death is swallowed up. The death is swallowed up. Where is the sting of death? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.